The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. We were dead through our trespasses and our sins, but God brings life out of death in a resurrection work and makes us to walk in the power of that resurrection. Thus we read that the Son of God gives life to whom He will, and that He came in order that we might have life, and that we might have it more abundantly. This newness of life is the work of God, since He has made us alive even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It is in the light of this resurrection that we are called to live holy lives. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Walking After the Spirit. You will run into trouble with the law if you are convicted of a DUI, driving under the influence. But believers run into trouble when we are not under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In our Christian walk, we must fervently desire to be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God every day. If you truly want to live for the Lord, you must earnestly seek to be a DUI, a disciple under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 8 and verse 4. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Walking After the Spirit. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy grace and faithfulness, and rejoice in all that thou dost daily do for us and in us. Use thy word in this hour to bring life from the dead for those who believe not, and comfort and strength for those that walk in thy way. Bless the truth to each listening heart, we pray thee in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We continue our study in Romans 8, 4, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. One of God's methods of teaching is to say the same thing over and over again, using different figures of speech to illustrate his point. Thus, we have the work of salvation illustrated to us by calling our Lord one who delivers us, one who saves us, one who redeems us. The cross is shown to us in the figure of the lamb slain upon the altar of the serpent lifted up in the wilderness, of the two goats on the day of atonement, one killed and the other released to carry our sins far away, in the symbol of the two birds, one killed and the other dipped in the blood of the first and released to fly free. 
Now this same work of our salvation is given to us in the types to be found in the life of Abel, in Noah entering the ark, in Abraham offering up his only son, in Moses bringing Israel out of slavery and into the promised land. It would not be difficult to find a hundred different illustrations and examples of salvation in the word of God, all telling the same story. The sinner is told to come to Christ. Well, and if he were lame and could not come, he's told to look and be saved. If he were blind so that he could not look, he's told to hear the word of salvation. But if he's deaf, he's told to taste and see that the Lord is good. Paul told the Athenians that the nations were to feel after God. And in addition to this invitation to hear, see, taste, and touch, we're told to confess, to receive, to come, to believe. Now, in the same way that God multiplies illustrations for salvation, God also talks about the Christian life and sets it forth in a dozen different ways, under many figures of speech and with many descriptions. The Christian life is a wrestling match. It's a race. It's the good fight of faith. In our text, it's walking after the Spirit. Every believer must, must turn his face towards this goal and strive for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. W.P. DuBose has written in his book, The Gospel in the Gospels, however far off it may be from us or we from it, we cannot and ought not to think of our salvation as anything less than our own perfected and completed sinlessness and holiness. We may be to the depths of our souls grateful and happy to be sinners pardoned and forgiven by divine grace. But surely God would not have us satisfied with that as the end and substance of the salvation that he gives to us in his son. Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. It does not require an exercise of divine power to extend pardon, but it does require that exercise of divine power to endow and enable us with all the qualities, energies, and activities that make for and that make holiness and life. See how Paul speaks of it when he prays, that we may know the exceeding greatness of God's power to us who believe, according to the working of the strength of his might, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, we are not permitted by the Bible to hold for a moment that any child of Adam ever arrives at a conditional perfection while in this earthly body. Anyone who says that he is without sin deceives himself, we are told in 1 John 1. But anyone who says that his old fleshly nature is still in him but does not work according to its inward nature makes God a liar because God says it does work. Sinless perfection is not promised in this world. But there can be no doubt that sinless perfection is in the mind and heart of the true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and that he desires that sinless perfection with all of his being and that he aspires toward it day after day. Moreover, as he thinks about it and longs for it, he becomes aware of his own growth in practical Christian living and he also becomes aware of the frightfulness of that Adamic nature which has always been his and which keeps him from the ultimate arrival at the sinless perfection, which cannot be his until the moment when he sees Christ and becomes like him. The progress of the Christian life is described in Scripture as the changing of a garment. This is one of many figures. We're told to put on the new man, which is created after the image of God, in true righteousness and holiness. 
we're exhorted not to lie to one another, seeing that we have put off the old man and his practices, and that we have put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created us. We're told that as many of us as have been identified into Christ have put on Christ. We are told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. In other words, our old Adamic nature is compared to a dirty garment, which we are to lay aside as we would lay aside any soiled clothing, and that we're to put on the new man as we would put on clean, fresh linen. The Galatians passage says that we have done this. The other passages exhort us to do it. And this is true of all the truths of the scripture. For God first tells us that we have the blessings, and then he tells us to exercise them. We're always told that a, a gift, an endowment, a power is really ours. And after that, we're told to exercise the gift, to enjoy the endowment, and to use the power. At the close of the day, we take off the soiled garments which have become contaminated by soaking up the sweat of our bodies, and we lay them aside while we cleanse our bodies, ready to rise on the next day for fresh cleansing and fresh garments. Thus it is with the Christian life. Day by day and hour by hour, we must put off the old and put on the new. If it's a hot summer day and we're busy exercising, there may be three or four changes of garments in the same day. And there may be days when we as believers are forced to come to the Lord for cleansing, for the laying aside of the old and the soiled, and the putting on of the clean and the fresh, and we may have to come several times, but always there is the new and the fresh for us. And there will be times when we can look at a garment and be thankful that a whole day has passed without soiling it too much. We might even think that it's wearable for another day, but thank God his provision for us in grace is so wonderful that we can always have the joy of laying aside the soiled and putting on the clean, even by a moment's glance at the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who made provision for our cleansing in his death and who made provision for the renewal of our righteousness by his resurrection from the dead. Then again, the continuing Christian life is set forth as a metamorphosis that is, by the transformation like that of the insect that comes out of its chrysalis to become a butterfly. And that is the meaning of the Greek word, where we read in Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service. And be not conformed or shaped with this world, but be ye metamorphosed. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the will of God, what is good and agreeable and perfect. Now here, the figure of speech is quite different from that of putting off a soiled garment and putting on a clean one. It's the figure of one type of life passing through a transformation and coming out something totally different. And it's to be noted that this exhortation is made to those who are in Christ, called brethren who understand the mercies of God and who move toward this transformation as a result of the love that has been manifested to us in Christ. And yet again, we discover in both the Gospels and the Epistles that this development of the Christian life is set forth as a reanimation or a resurrection. It is in the light of this resurrection that we are called to live holy lives. 
For we read in Colossians, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, you have died, and your risen life is hid with Christ in God. But the figure of speech is slightly changed from resurrection to creation in other verses, and we're shown as being the objects of an entirely new work of God, a veritable new creation. There is less of a figure of speech here and more of a description of the method by which God is daily working in us. We are said to be his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, one of the verses which we have already seen in connection with another of these figures, that of putting on a fresh garment, also contains the teaching that this garment is a new creation, not after the image of fallen Adam, but after the likeness of God in righteousness and true holiness. Now, it's for this reason that it is stated that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, that all things have passed away, that all things are become new. And yet again, we are told that liturgical works can never have any effect in our lives. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything but a new creation. And yet again, in another figure of speech, the Christian life is described in terms of its effects and is thus set forth as a sanctification, a making holy. We must never be afraid of this word, which has come to us sanctification from a Latin root. To sanctify, if we take it out of its Latin form and put it in its Anglo-Saxon, to sanctify is merely to make holy. There are many verses where this idea is expressed. Paul prayed for the young Thessalonian church that the God of peace might make them entirely holy. And Peter said that this was already in the past tense, since our souls had been purified, made holy by our obedience to the truth having been born again through an imperishable seed. And yet again, in the first of all the epistles that were written to the young churches, Paul says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. For God has not called us for uncleanness, but in holiness. Now putting it again into the Anglo-Saxon form, we have, this is the will of God, even your being made holy. And this same idea is set forth in the later epistle to the Thessalonians, where Paul said that he was bound to give thanks to God for them, since they had been chosen by God from the beginning, in order that they might be saved through being made holy. And unto this the apostle adds, he called you. Now it's because of the fact that all who have been thus chosen by God, and who have been processed through the work of Christ, and declared to be made holy, that New Testament title for believers is saints. Again, if we give this the Anglo-Saxon rootage, we must say that our title is that of holy ones. Thus it is that we shall find towards the end of this eighth chapter of Romans that God, who searches the hearts of men, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And thus we are seen to be saints, holy ones, not by an act of men or a congregation or a denomination, but by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now this same divine process of the Christian life is set forth in yet another terminology, 
showing perhaps the source of the new life that is within us. For our life in its process of daily transformation is said to be the forming of Christ within us or the dwelling of Christ within us. Paul told the Galatians, Christ liveth in me. It was for this purpose that he prayed that we might be strengthened with all might through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Again, we see the language being used in two tenses. He does live in you. Let him live in you. All the way through, we find this same dual image. You are holy. Be holy. You are alive. Live like men who are alive. Paul had a knowledge of the divine position of all who were believers, and he longed to see that position become a living reality. He spoke of his prayer life in terms of the agony of a pregnant woman bringing forth a child. He writes to the Galatians, My little children, with whom I am again in travail, until Christ be formed in you. And it is thus that we have the mind of Christ, and that he is made unto us holiness. Yet again, changing the figure, it is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is set forth as the continuing power in our lives. The spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead is dwelling in us. And it is this that makes us alive because of righteousness. And thus it is that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And he cries back to the father, calling him by name through us, Abba, Father. Now all that we've seen thus far is the setting forth of synonyms for our text. We walk after the spirit. The changing of the clothes, the transformation of an image, the bringing of life out of death, the coming of a new creation, the making of holiness in our lives so that we may be called holy ones, the coming of Christ to dwell in our hearts, to be formed in us so that his spirit may indwell us, that he may fashion us like unto him. All of this is the turning of the facets of our text. For this truth of holiness in Christ is a veritable gem. And just as you turn a diamond and see the light shine from its various facets, so that every movement brings forth new light, so it is that every time you turn the New Testament, you see this gem of truth bringing forth new lights from hidden depths. We are to walk after the Spirit, changed from glory into glory. Now this phrase, walking after the Spirit, is perhaps the most eloquent of all of the symbols of the life of sanctification. For there is something measured about a walk which we in this age of motor cars and airplanes are in danger of losing. In my student days, I took a long walking trip in France. It wasn't the matter of a morning or an afternoon, but it was the entire month of June. I took a streetcar to Corbeil in the suburbs of Paris in order to avoid the necessity of pounding hard pavements. And then I set off through the countryside, through the forest of Fontainebleau down through the little village of moray sur loin through Sens and its old cathedral, the prototype of Canterbury in England, through the smiling villages of Burgundy, Dijon and its old houses, and then the pine-filled hills of the Jura, the Lake of Geneva, and the Alps beyond. Oh, there is something indescribable and incomparable about a long walking trip to see an old village upon a far hill and to approach it one step at a time, 
has something exquisite about it that cannot be put into words. I do not know how many times since then I have stood a continent and an ocean away and breathed once more the air of that countryside and remembered details of my journey in my youth. And oftentimes, when I come upon a passage in the word of God that speaks of the Christian life as a walk, I remember moments of that fair June, and I thank God for the plodding perseverance of the saints and the glories of learning patience in one step at a time. Oh, it's wonderful to know that certain things are to be left behind and that we are to stretch out to the things that lie before. Oh, it's thrilling to catch a glimpse of some distant truth, some desired attainment, and then to move toward it with the leading of the Lord step by step, knowing full well that in his time we shall reach the goal together. For to walk after the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit, and to be led by the Spirit brings the certain knowledge that one is a child of God, an heir of God, and a fellow heir with Christ. Those who are led by the Spirit of God and who are walking after the Spirit are, little by little, recognized as those who truly desire to walk. I remember in my walking trip years ago, at first, there was a temptation to do it the easy way. There were not too many automobiles in those days, the early 20s, and the few that came along would stop and offer a ride if there was a place, but it didn't take much of a smile and much of a thank you to let them know that there was a fixed determination to walk. I've always been glad that I did not take the easy way, and I've always been glad spiritually that the Lord has kept me from any of the sects and the false doctrines which would seek to bring one to the goal in one or two easy steps. When you're tired and weary, it would be so easy to let down the bars and accept some hitchhiking teaching that tells you that you can get it and have it. When the Lord wants to keep you from looking at experience so that you may learn to walk with him. Unhappy the man in the Christian life who trades him for it. Unhappy the man whose testimony goes back to a date. Such and such happened to me so many years ago on such and such a date. Oh, no, no, no. Don't have a testimony that goes back to a calendar date. God does not want you to look back to experiences. He wants you to know Christ and to walk with him moment by moment. There'll be memories of the road, yes. We will recall the time when we slipped and fell and how he picked us up and set us upon our feet and established our goings. We will remember how he cleansed us when we were spattered, how he cheered us when we were faint, how he held us up when we were weary. We will remember how he fed us when we were hungry and how he brought us to a wayside spring. But since he is with us at the present moment, we will discover that it's more wonderful to look at him and see him as he reveals himself to us in today's mile of the road than it is to look away from him and to try to recall what he was in some past incident. Yes, as we walk with him, we become marked as men who walk. There's something about a man who is on a walking trip that's to be distinguished from the man who's hitching rides. And thus it is with the one who walks with God. We become spirit-determined men, spirit-led men, as distinguished from carnal men, that is, men under the dominance 
of their own weak and vicious selves. We do not want to walk after the flesh. We earnestly desire to walk and to walk after the spirit. The essence of the New Testament symbols certainly is that the renewal which is wrought upon him who is by faith in Christ is the work of the spirit of Christ who dwells within his children as a power not themselves making for righteousness and gradually but surely transforms us after the image of God, transforming not the stream of our activities only, but ourselves in the very center of our being. We are being made like him. Let us therefore walk in the spirit. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take this to many hearts and use it to thy glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Every believer struggles with the conflict between the desires of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh. But if we focus on Christ and walk by the Holy Spirit, we can glorify God in our daily lives. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, Walking After the Spirit. Now you can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the internet by visiting us at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Walking After the Spirit, or simply request message number R8-7. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, Tragedy or Triumph. Our lives are often shaken by devastating tragedy, and yet we can look back later and see how God brought forth glorious triumph from tragic circumstances for our benefit and His glory. This free booklet contains six favorite sermons by Dr. Barnhouse, including Tragedy or Triumph, Who Died at Calvary, Oil and Wine, Salted with Fire, The Scales of God, and Falling into Grace. These messages will encourage, challenge, and uplift you. Ask for your free copy of Tragedy or Triumph when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you've benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.